Good morning, everyone. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you, as Jude said. I'm Jason. For any of you that might not have met me, I'd love the opportunity to get to know you. I'm a fellow servant here in Christ with my loving family, Mercy Church. It's my privilege to look into God's Word with you today. We'll be in the Gospel according to Matthew. <laughs> I probably should keep that up. Huh? So the next thing I'm going to say is we're in a series called First Things First. And it looks at the handful of times that Christ gives us a priority to place over something else. Do this first and then consider this. You know, I love a good story. And I heard one years ago about Charles Spurgeon, the great English pastor from the late 19th century. Uh, he was at a stage in his walk where he was mentoring younger pastors, offering wisdom, little tidbits of insight that he'd gathered over the years, passing the baton, you could say. Some colleagues approached him, and they had found just the most sensational new young pastor. Couldn't wait for Spurgeon to meet this guy. He was just amazing. He was going to be the next Charles Spurgeon. They wanted to know if Spurgeon would come to this pastor's conference where this young pastor was set to give the keynote sermon. Big deal. Sermon. So Spurgeon says, okay, and as he attends this, they bring Spurgeon to the front row. They introduce the young pastor up onto the stage and lofty accolades. He comes up and he's clearly very self-confident. He's got no problem with lacking any confidence. Very self-assured. He gets to the lectern, puts his notes to the side, got his Bible over here, delivers his message. Minutes into the sermon, he sort of stutters a little bit. Not anything major. You'd hardly notice that he sort of just continues on. A few minutes go down the road, and he misquotes a verse, has to correct himself. You know, not awful, but it sort of throws his timing off. He tries to get back into order with things, and then a few minutes go by, and he loses his place pretty badly. And what seems to become apparent is this thing is starting to unravel. It's turning into a disaster, so much so that by the end, he can't really even gather himself. He can't really make a conclusion. He's, he's so far off balance. And to add insult to injury, he accidentally knocks over his notebook and his Bible, and sheets go everywhere, and he scrambles to try to gather them all up and stumbles off of the stage, sheets flying on the air. It was a disaster. Now, uh, that could happen to anyone. Hopefully it doesn't happen to me today, uh, but it could. His colleagues, when they gathered up the courage to approach Spurgeon again, they had to ask him, like, okay, well, you know, sorry about that. We didn't really test the guy, of course, but do you have some words of insight for him that would help him grow as he moves forward? And Spurgeon said simply this. He said, if he had gone up, the way that he came down, he would have come down 
the way that he went up. It's a very dangerous thing to be subject to a heart that thinks, that thinks it already has it all figured out. Jesus is going to address that kind of heart today in this text, and I pray by his spirit, because there's a good chance that kind of heart, well, it's going to sound all too familiar. If your Bibles are open, let's begin with the reading at verse 1 of Matthew 7. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, first, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now, what on earth is our Lord saying here? We pray that we find out, Father, God, your word is so good and so instructive. God, help us to see what you revealed in your word today. Help us to obey our Lord to his glory. Let his words be clear and convicting by the power of your spirit this morning. I pray that our hearts will absorb it, that our hearts will be changed. We ask it in Christ's name, amen. Judge not, huh? Okay, well, should be pretty simple then. I'll just stop judging. And I'll be in good shape, right? No, 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 no. You'll have a hard time doing that in this life. Uh, you know, because in this life, if you think about it, you have to make judgments. God graciously gave us the ability and the freedom to make choices. I think most of us would agree with that. And those choices they're not just simply choices, they require a discernment to be made, right? In fact, they require a judgment, every choice. So, let's think about that. Let's make it simple. What's a judgment? Simple definition of judgment. A judgment is a conclusion based on the best available evidence. That's all it is. The judgment is a conclusion based on the best available evidence. And Jesus isn't teaching us to avoid judging altogether. He's talking about condemnation when he says, judge not, right? To judge, condemn, those words in the Greek, they're interchangeable. But he's not telling us not to judge. That isn't something that's even possible. We have to make choices. We have to make judgments in those choices. No, and it's not even biblical either. 1 Corinthians 
5 says we're to judge those inside the church. 1 Corinthians 2 says that the spiritual man judges all things. And Jesus himself says in John chapter 7, not to judge by appearances, but to judge with right judgment. He's telling us to judge. And it might sound strange on the surface, but the issue at stake here is not whether or not to judge. We will judge. The issue at stake here is actually how we go about judging others when we do. If that's the case, right, the question I should be asking then is, okay, well, if I have to judge, if I'm going to be judging, how do I judge with right judgment? Right, that's what it boils down to. Jesus is teaching us here that there's a way to go about making judgments. The way that first considers how I view my own righteousness. Isn't, isn't that an interesting connection to make? What he's showing us today is that to judge others his way, well, it requires something. Humility. Now, humility is a gigantic subject. We can't cover humility, right? We are going to cover a small, small subsection of humility dealing with humility in how we judge one another. That's what Jesus will cover in the passage today, right? And uh, here's my purpose today. I want us to learn to judge with right judgment, right? By hearing Jesus explain why we judge with humility, how we do that, and when we should, right? The questions we should be considering are, how do I keep from judging others hypocritically? Why is it important? When should I judge at all? Let's begin with why. And that's something that's really special if you stop to consider it. Why we judge with right judgment, why we judge with humility, why is something special about our God? Do you ever think about that? I mean, he's the one we're to obey. He was never under any obligation to explain himself or explain his will to us. He could simply command us, and we simply need to obey. He says jump, we say how high. We don't ever have to ask why. He never has to explain why. But he does. He, instead, is a loving father. And he shows his character as a father in places like this. Because just like a good father, he doesn't merely want his children to do right from wrong. No, he wants them to understand right from wrong. Isn't that powerful? I love that our God is a good father that instructs us to why something is good for us. Here's what he says. He says, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Okay, so let me just paint a scenario. Say, oh, Jason, I don't want to be judged. That's what it's saying here. So I just won't judge anyone ever. And then I can't be held to judgment, right? Eh, not exactly. 
Uh, let's take a look at a verse like this. What about James 4.17? What does it say? It says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, oh, for him it is sin. That means that when I'm in the wrong, when I do wrong, I'm in the wrong, right? We, we get that. I commit a sin, I did something wrong. Oh, but I'm in the wrong when I do nothing. I'm in the wrong when I do wrong, but I'm in the wrong when I avoid doing right. Let me paint that picture for you with another scenario. Say I'm, I'm a physician. You're my patient. You're sitting across the room, and I notice you pick up a glass of deadly poison. You're about to drink it. Is the right thing for me to do, say, oh man, I don't want to get involved there. No, you wouldn't see me as a good physician. You wouldn't see me as a good person, right? The loving thing to do is to approach you with that. I'm going to make a judgment in that situation and say, that's wrong, don't do it. That's the loving thing to do. That's the humble thing to do. We're not loving to others when we avoid judging others. And what's interesting here too is that Jesus, he says that you're held to the standard that you keep for others. Interesting, that, that sort of brings in humility and the definition of humility. You Google it and Google will tell you that humility is a low view of one's own importance. Right? Biblical humility is a low view of myself and a high view of God and his love of others. So sadly enough, a very high view of myself, well, guess what? That's gonna mean that I have a very low view of others, including God, by the way. And even worse, a very high view of myself, it almost always equates to a very, very low mercy for others too. And Jesus, he resets the scales for us with this. And he says, the, with the judgment you pronounce, that should strike us a little bit. With the judgment we pronounce, we're so quick to expect judgment to deliver judgment on others, aren't we? And yet we're so quick to expect mercy for ourselves. That's just our sinful state. It really is. Want a great example of that? Take a look at Luke 18. There we go. <clears throat> Jesus, right, he, that's Jesus, also told them this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt, right? High view of oneself, low view of others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Stop right there. Is that a high view of someone, like high view of oneself? Well, that is the highest view of someone else. God, thank you that you made me so much better than everyone else. Look who he compares himself to, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. Right? That's a, 
You set this bar so low, I'm so great. He says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes all that I get. Gold star for the Pharisee. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. It's almost exactly like what Spurgeon said, isn't it? Yeah. The high view of myself leads to the low view of others. It's the exact opposite of humility. The man with the low view of his own importance, of his own righteousness, did you notice the judgment that Jesus placed on him? Yeah, he said that man went down to his house justified. What's that mean? Justified's a legal term. means forgiven, acquitted, not guilty. That kind of heart is what Jesus says is justified. The tax collector, he didn't look at the Pharisee. He didn't point the finger, no. He couldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. He wouldn't have even wanted to look at himself in the mirror. He's so disgusted with his sin. Guys, that's the heart of humility. That's the kind that we need first if we're to judge another. And, you know, what's interesting is when Jesus talks about judgment you pronounce, it will be judged, the measurement that you use, it will be measured to you. A lot of people tend to think of that in today's culture as just a measure of fairness. It's like karma. You ever hear karma? Ever use the word karma? Right? Like, oh, karma. Karma is sort of this idea, it comes from Hinduism, the idea that I do something good, well, I should expect something good. I do something bad, hmm, it's going to come back around, I'll, I'll get something bad. It's this cosmic force that's supposed to keep everything judged and fair. As it's not true. It's just not true. My family used to say, what goes around comes around. We use phrases like that all the time. Maybe your family did too. Um, yeah, this is not merely about fairness in this life. It's about the glory that's due Jesus' name. In karma, a sinful person, gosh, they have zero hope. Zero hope. Why? Because karma is a system. There's no mercy in karma, right? Makes sense. And we're told mercy triumphs over judgment in James chapter 2. Mercy should be of the utmost value to us. Well, you realize that in a world without real mercy, the best you can do is cling to self-righteousness. That's, that's what the Pharisee is doing. Think about it. If ultimate justice is dictated by karma, I have to demonstrate, I have to point out that others are more sinful than me. It's just a rat race, right? I have to show that another person is less than me so that I'm more than them. Because there's no righteous judge to justify me in karma, I'm left to justify myself. Yet Jesus by contrast, 
is perfectly righteous. He's perfectly holy. Perhaps we feel that we are too when, when we judge others, that, that we somehow display his standard. Well, okay, if, if you think that, have you considered the fact that Jesus is also perfectly loving? He's perfectly compassionate. He's, comperf- he's perfectly merciful, perfectly empathetic too. Do we display that when we judge others? Look, there's only one time involving one person where this balance was not upheld, where the measure given was not the measure used, where the judgment pronounced was not the judgment the person himself used. You know the time that I'm talking about. It's where a perfectly sinless person was held where a perfectly sinless person held every right to be perfectly exacting of judgment toward us. Instead, was altogether forgiving, altogether assuming of our guilt, our due judgment on himself, so that you and I could be completely free of that judgment. Yeah, when it comes to fairness, look, there is nothing fair about the cross. There's nothing fair about the cross. There was no what goes around comes around at the cross. There was no karma. The cross puts that kind of thinking to shame. He who knew no sin became sin for my sake so that in him I would become the righteousness of God. There is nothing fair about that. The cross was entirely unfair to my benefit because he loved us so much. That's the gospel. So for us, the difference between whether or not judging others will be with mercy, with humility, or judging them with hypocrisy, with self-righteousness, it's actually going to boil down to how real we are about judging ourselves. Next. How do we do that? Jesus isn't going to simply explain to us the reason for good judging. Right? He explained what that is. But he's also going to give us the way to be useful in doing it. Isn't that great? He says, why do, you, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye, you hypocrite? First, take the log out of your own eye, then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Oh, man. Is there one word that kind of sticks out to you in this? Hypocrite. Oh, scathing, right? That's a really, really harsh word. We know what a hypocrite is. Do you know where the word hypocrite comes from? It's Greek. It's a Greek word. It's directly transliterated from ancient Greek into English. If you look at the text here, it's hypocrites. You'd know exactly what it is. In ancient Greek, the word hypocrite meant actor. It's like what we use for our word actor. A hypocrite was an actor, but a hypocrite was a particular type of actor. A hypocrite was the kind of actor that wore a mask. 
here are some of those masks. These are the masks of the hypocrite. Isn't that a powerful thing that Jesus brings into the conversation? You can see there's different expressions, different emotions. They portray different realities. Obviously, not what, what the actor himself would be feeling at the time. That became a powerful image, a very strong metaphor, even in the ancient world, for hypocrisy. That's, a, that's so perfect. A, a hypocrite is someone who portrays something that they really are not. So why call me a hypocrite? You know, like, okay, okay, I, I don't want to be a hypocrite. Jesus, why you call me a hypocrite? Well, a couple of reasons. Right? How should I expect that another would accept my judgment of his sin if I don't bother dealing with my own? Right? That is hypocrisy. And also, I mean, how should I expect that another would accept my judgment if I don't have a heart that would accept his judgment of me? That's hypocrisy. That's why Jesus is calling us a hypocrite here. And to drive the message home, he uses hyperbole, right? He uses the log. I don't physically have a log in my own eye. We would probably know that. It's hyperbole. It's an exaggeration to really make a point. If I say, I've told you a million times I'm going to be here today. I didn't tell you a million times. You know what I mean. That's what he's doing here. And what's important is he's not saying that my sin is always worse than my brother's sin. It's very important that we understand that. He's not saying that. He's not saying that my sin is somehow worse always than my other brother's sin. What he's saying is my own sin, unnoticed and unjudged by me, is a bigger problem than my brother's sin when it comes to judging my brother. That's what we have to take care of first, Jesus says. And I love that he uses the metaphor of a speck. It doesn't even have to be a metaphor, right? Sure, I might have a speck in my eye, but the speck, why does he use this little speck in my brother's eye? Well, he's not saying, like we said, that, that my brother's sin isn't as important as mine. It might be, it might be worse, might, who knows? No, he's hinting at something. He's, he's helping, <clears throat> he's saying that in helping another overcome sin, we need to recognize that that's a precision action, right? It's a precision thing, and it's going to require precision tools. You ever demo a house? Ever tear out a wall, maybe haul out some cabinets or something? What if you had like a, a back deck? You're going to tear out a back deck. What would be the appropriate tools for that job? Might have a sledgehammer, sawzall, crowbar, right? Those are, those are the type of tools that you'd need to handle that type of job. Well, what about this? You guys remember this? Oh, yeah, everybody chuckles. This is the game of operation. Right? That was a fun game. If your friend had, I didn't have this game. But when you got to play it, the, the goal of the game is when it's your turn, you're told to pick out something, and you need to very carefully pluck out whatever it is you're supposed to take. If you accidentally hit one of these 
side walls of the compartment, and there's a big alarm that goes off, and you lose your turn. Can I bring a sledgehammer to this game? That's not going to work, right? This is a precision tool operation. And uh, it requires the right tool for the game, just like helping a brother overcome sin. Helping a brother overcome sins, just like that. You're not a deck-removing surgeon. You're a speck-removing surgeon. Silly little phrase. Okay, if that's the only thing you remember from this morning, great. You are not a deck-removing surgeon. You are a speck-removing surgeon. It requires precision. It requires specificity, right? What are those precision tools? It requires patience. It requires understanding. It requires diligence. It requires insight. It requires specificity of the sin. It requires trust. It requires relationship, doesn't it? Those are the precision tools that we need to use when we're approaching another in their sin. But guess what? There's another thing too, and that's that Jesus is showing we will also need precision when it comes to our vision of that person that we're trying to help. Jesus demonstrates that my own sin and my unwillingness to truly conquer it in Christ blinds me. It blinds me, doesn't it? Jesus says, when the log is out, then you can see clearly. Which means that when the log is in, I'm not seeing clearly. Right? So back to our game. It's your turn. And right before you pick up the little tweezers through the precision action of the surgery, you pick up some glasses that are like this thick and put them on. Now what does your vision look like? Uh-oh. That's not going to help you do what you need to do in this game. Well, if... I was the one being operated on, and you said you were my surgeon, and I saw you with those glasses on. Hey, I'm not going to get comfortable with you. I'm going to get away from you. I'm no idiot. I know what that means. If you're a surgeon and that's your sight, and you're operating on me, I'm in big trouble. That's the metaphor that Jesus is giving us. When we haven't dealt with our own sin, we lack precise understanding, the understanding necessary to help another deal with theirs, right? Our vision is this, which is why he tells us we need to do something first. We need to correct this first. In an argument, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? It's what the other person did, right? what they did wrong. Isn't that so true? Oh my gosh, that's so sinful. It really is. That's our sinful nature, just speaking right to us, like, oh, you know what that guy did? I can't live and speak and display just a perfectly holy life. I'll try to, but, but most of us recognize that. We're going to make some mistakes here and there. But even when I do recognize that, I'm so quick to focus not on my own personal need for change. No, I'm quick to focus 
on noticing and trying to change everyone else. Why is that? That is sin. That's sin, guys. And I'm not here to tell you that the outside world is right and, and that you and I are wrong. Hey, far from it. I'm not telling us that. What I am here to tell you is that Jesus is telling us that our priorities are mixed up, right? I mean, the source of all evil in this world is sin. Source of all evil. But remember that sin is a choice. Sin's a choice. So the responsibility for sin in this world, what I can be responsible for regarding sin in this world, prevention of sinful choices, guess what? It's me. Let me remember David. David had a multitude of pretty bad, heavy sins. He committed adultery with someone else's wife. Then he lied to cover it up. Lied to the guy, lied to others so that he wouldn't be exposed. And then when that didn't work, he murdered the guy. If it couldn't be worse, he went back to his life as though nothing had even happened. That's a very high view of my own importance, a very low view of my own sin, isn't it? Couldn't be a greater dynamic there. That is until he was approached by Nathan the prophet. This is in 2 Samuel chapter 12. It's a long narrative. I won't bring it up here, but the gist of it is this. Nathan comes to David with a scenario. It's a trap. He tells them of two men. One is a poor man. All he owns is this one little lamb, and he adores that lamb, so precious to him and his family. And the other's a rich man who has a multitude of lambs, multitude of sheep. The rich man has a traveler come and stay with him. Instead of taking one of his own sheep to feed the traveler, he goes to the poor man and takes his lamb to feed the traveler. Nathan says to David, well, what should happen? David said, kill him, right? He said, that man should die. You should pay back fourfold what he's taken. Wow, guys. He was in his sin when he said that. The judgment you pronounce. Remember that? Oh, man, it's powerful. And that should relate to us in a lot of ways, right? Nathan said, no, the Lord knows what you did, David. Stop fixating on the sin of those around you. You are responsible for the sin of this world, starting with others? No, that's not what Jesus says here. You're responsible for the sin of the world, the evil of this world, the mess of this world, starting with yourself. It starts with you. It starts with me. First, take the log out of your own eye. Once I have, and I'm seeing clearly, is there ever a time when I'm going to judge another? Yeah, yeah, there is. Jesus isn't telling us never to judge, but first, to acknowledge and repent of our own sin before we do. We should be able to count on each other to help us with our sins, shouldn't we? Especially the ones we don't ourselves see. And I think that's why the metaphor of the eye is a powerful one here, 
right? For a number of reasons. Why? Number one, obviously, the eye is the visual information that comes in from the world. It's how I get my input from the world. It dictates, it kind of filters what my perception of the world is. But also, the eye in Jewish culture, and certainly in the Hebrew language, I was used to describe someone's inner state, right? how they viewed everyone else. You remember that Jesus used the phrase, the eye is the lamp of the body. He's talking about how generous I am to someone else, how I view someone else. If someone said that I had a good eye, it meant I was a generous person. I was a forgiving person, a charitable person. And that equates well with what Jesus is talking about here, isn't it? How I'm going to approach someone else, it's how I view that person to start with, the type of person that I am. That's whether or not I have a good or bad eye. I've got something lodged in my eye, well, that's gonna affect my outlook and the way that I view other people and the way I am inside. But unlike hands and feet and legs and other body parts, we depend on the outside world to see our own eyes, don't we? That's another powerful thing about the eye that he uses here. Um, and that should hint to us how vital community is, how important fellowship is, right? how vital it is to have others in your life who can give you right judgment. Let me give you an example. Just a few weeks ago, I was running around, had multiple appointments uh, here locally. It was early morning. I hopped out of the car. I was a little bit cold, so I grabbed my coat, put it on. I'm scurrying into this medical facility. And the medical facilities still require a mask to be worn. So um, I like, remember that just as I'm going through the door. I'm like, oh, thank the Lord. I've got one in my pocket. I put it on. I'm in there for several minutes. And then um, I leave, get back out into the parking lot. I'm eager to take the mask off. I grab it, and it sticks to my hand. Now, what in the world is that? There's a gigantic glob of gum that was stuck on the outside of my mask. I had no idea. What had happened was I had gum in my coat pocket. My mask was in there. It had sat in the sun and melted that gum and stuck to my mask. I was totally embarrassed, and what I couldn't help laughing about was that nobody had even told me when I was in that clinic the whole time. I need that, right? You need that. The eye is a good metaphor because we don't see our own eye unless we have something else to help us see. So when we are seeing clearly, finally, we're seeing clearly to judge, but should not. Well, how can, I, how can I know? Is there a way to know that? There is. There is. When do we judge with right judgment? Well, it turns out there are times when despite our desire for holiness, despite our humility, despite our spiritual maturity, despite our willingness to help others, godly judgment just isn't possible or profitable. He says, do not give dogs what is holy. And do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. 
Ooh, dogs and pigs. I mean, what's going on here? Dogs and pigs in the ancient world, they, they weren't the friendly little pets that we make them today. In the ancient world, especially for the Jews, dogs and pigs were unclean animals. Right? The Jews wouldn't go near them. They wouldn't eat them. They wouldn't have anything to do with them. And more importantly, those were things that were outside the covenant community. So what he's hinting at here is this type of person is someone who is not or is acting as though they're not in the covenant community. They're not approachable. He also uses animals as an imagery. Why? Because, because it's automatic. Animals lack rational ability. They don't think about things. This type of person here, there's not, there's not a thought process involved. They just act. They just do. He's showing us with this imagery just how receptive a heart without humility is. Do you notice that? That's a heart with no humility. Is going to be loving, <clears throat> is, is a loving correction going to fall on that kind of heart? No way. They're going to act like a wild animal. That kind of heart has no regard for the value of humble correction. That's why he uses the metaphor of pearls, doesn't it? That's such high value to have a humble correction. Think about what Paul says in Titus chapter 3. He says, As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once, then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that person is warped and sinful, self-condemned. Notice that I approach him once, then twice, I give him the benefit of the doubt, but he's still divisive. He's still acting as though he's outside the covenant community. He does not have a heart of humility. Paul says, I have nothing more to do with him, just like what Jesus said. He's also saying that he's self-condemned. That means he's outside the covenant community, right? We don't want to be there. Think about Luke 18, right? Our friend, the Pharisee, Think about his heart. Is he going to be the type of person that's very approachable? If I say, hey, um, Mr. Pharisee, great job on fasting and great job on your tithing, but uh, just want to mention you've got some sin in there. Like, yeah, right. He's going to run me out of the temple. That's what he's talking about here. But he isn't just saying that. No. He's also teaching us something else. There's a test here. You ready for a test? Read this verse to yourself. And think about who the dogs are, the pigs are. You've got someone in your life that is like this. Who's that person? Who's the first person that comes to your mind? Guys, if, if you said anyone other than yourself... I'll just have to ask you, how do you know that? How do you know that? Why, because he says, you do this, you do that. No, 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 you is plural here. He's talking to his disciples. He's talking to the church. The opening verses of the Sermon on the Mount saying, seeing the crowd, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, plural, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Guys, this should speak to us that this could and very well may be us. This might be my heart. He's giving us a window into self-examining our own hearts, asking the question, is that actually me? Think about it this way. James. James 1.19, oh, it's such a good verse. Know this, my beloved brothers, who's he speaking to? The church. My beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. That is a humble heart. That is a description of a humble heart. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. We love those verses. We don't pay as much attention to verse 21. See what 21 says? It says, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness. What's meekness mean? It's a synonym for humility. Receive with humility. Receive with meekness the implanted word. There's your pearls. Which is able to save your souls. Lots of stuff. Lots of stuff with humility. It's, it's pretty big, but hopefully we... We tackle it in some bite-sized pieces when it comes to judging one another. And Jesus helps us with that. Jesus tells us why we're to judge with right judgment. It's because with a humble heart, you will judge others with a measure equal to or even more merciful than your own. Jesus also tells us how we're to judge with right judgment, right? by approaching another in humility, with delicate precision, which can only happen if you deal with your sin first. Jesus tells us also when we judge with right judgment, when the one we seek to help has an approachable heart, a humble heart, especially if I'm the one who needs approaching. What should this be telling us? It should tell us that every time you get focused on the wrong of the world, as if to assume the way that you are living is right, repent. I'll just say it. Repent when that's your thought process. When I see the awful things of the world on the news, when I hear the dreadful and godful things, ungodly things that are happening around us, Immediately, we should be saying, I'm sorry, Father. I'm sorry, Father, that what you made is so good, and yet I've contributed to making it bad with my own sin. I'm sorry, Father, that I hold the others in derision, placing them at a distance, keeping them at a standard I can't even keep myself. Father, I'm sorry that I judge others hypocritically, self-righteously, as if to assume that my laundry doesn't need cleaning, because it does. I'm sorry, Father, that I've neglected to judge myself first and to judge myself to your standard, your son. Because if I did, then I could see clearly to make a difference in this world and to make a difference your way instead of mine. Our Lord wouldn't be warning us, teaching us, 
encouraging us here to judge with right judgment, with humility in judging others. If he didn't want a stronger kingdom, if he didn't want a better world, believe it. He wants those things. Believe that that's what he desires. And believe that we need each other to be effective in bringing that about for his sake. It's like this. Proverbs 27 says, iron sharpens iron. And one man sharpens another. That's what we have to have, guys. We need each other to get better for his sake. So can I ask you, can I count on you, brother and sister, to judge me? You heard me say it. Judge me, but judge me with humility. Can you trust that I will be working on having a heart of humility to be approached with that judgment? Will you trust that I, with God's help, will seek to always encourage, always equip, and yes, always judge you in the same way? Pray with me.